When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's a pretty grim scene looking around the front pages this morning with pictures and words marking the passing of 100,000 people since the coronavirus hit these shores around one year ago. There have been plenty of recriminations, there have been plenty of fingers pointed at officials, at government ministers and even at Boris Johnson. Let us be in no doubt that we should all spare a moment today to think about those families who have lost loved ones to this ghastly disease. But let us also be in no doubt where this virus actually came from, how misrepresented it was by the World Health Organization uh, around about this time last year, and of course, the Chinese Communist Party. And let us also not forget the other hundreds of thousands of people who have died in the past year or so, particularly those families that have suffered and are still suffering massively because of the restrictions on their lives and their livelihoods. This is not a binary choice, ladies and gentlemen. It's not you either have to feel sorrow and pain for one group of people without feeling it for another. It is entirely possible to feel it for every single person who dies. It is entirely possible to be very concerned about the coronavirus, but to also be very concerned about the way uh, that the rollout of the restrictions and the vaccinations is affecting people as well for heaven's sake. This is not the time to make party political points so I hope very much that Sakir Starmer, who is self-isolating again, I believe, won't do so today at Prime Minister's Questions. We'll be asking John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent, what he is expecting. 0344 499 Neil Oliver joins us later on with his take on the way things are right now. Earlier this week he wasn't feeling too optimistic about events. We'll find out if his mood has improved. Plus, we will check in with the latest statistics on infections, which still appear to be moving, certainly in some parts of the country, in the right direction. As ever, we want to continue to hear your stories of lockdown, how it's affecting you, what you're being told and what you're doing. We need to hear your voices. We are expecting as well throughout the course of the day, in addition to Prime Minister's questions, an announcement about hotel quarantine. However, uh, it won't affect absolutely everybody because I've got a couple of questions. Why has Chelsea's new manager been able to arrive in the UK and go straight to work? Thomas Tuchel, who took over from Frank Lampard, came from France yesterday and was at training last night and will be in the Chelsea dugout tonight. Apparently, he's able to do his quarantining in between the football. Well, I'm sorry. I think football needs to get real. I think football needs to wake up and I think football needs to start realising that actually there's nothing special about being an elite footballer. You've already got a massively privileged lifestyle and I think it's time football started taking COVID a little bit more seriously, don't you? 0344 499 1000. And finally, why is a Lib Dem poser in the House of Lords having a go at Talk Radio? What, does he think it's not a free country or something? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station in the land. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And it's time to say a very good morning to our favourite chief political commentator, Mr John Rental. John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, it's difficult not to feel um, slightly kind of grim this morning, looking at the coverage in the newspapers of all the terrible things that uh, that, that we're reading about, the 100,000 deaths, Boris saying we will remember them um, and all of that. But as much as it's very much a milestone for the media, um, it's really just no different from what it was yesterday and the day before, is it? I mean, it's being made into something, which I understand. And, and obviously, as I said at the top of the show, you know, our thoughts are with people who have suffered and with families who have lost loved ones. Um, but it, uh, it doesn't change anything, really, just by making a big deal of it. No, it, I mean, it is just a, a round number. Uh, but at least the Prime Minister did have the uh, decency to pause to respect it last night yeah. and he didn't do his usual trick of um uh, of changing tone halfway through and saying uh, how we were headed towards the sunlit uplands but actually the truth is that there is light at the end of the tunnel um and things are heading in the right direction i mean there are obviously uh, remaining questions about the threat from uh, new variants but apart from that and apart from the the problems of hotel quarantine at airports, uh, things do seem to be moving in the in the right direction generally. Yes, I think so. And I'm interested in the way that the public discourse has been going this morning from what I've been listening to um, around uh, uh, the various uh, broadcast outlets this morning, where it now seems as though those who wanted to see more lockdown are complaining that we didn't do it hard enough and that's why so many people have died. Those who think the lockdown is a little bit too... Um, sort of hard and has been more punishing than it should have been, are saying, well, if the, if the lockdown worked, you know, how do we know that, uh, you know, why, why have all these people died? There seems to be like nobody actually satisfied with the way that things have been have been stewarded, if you like. <laughs> well, human nature is uh, remains the same, Mike. Um, but you're absolutely right that I do hope that there isn't too much partisan point scoring at uh, Prime Minister's questions mm. uh, coming up shortly. Um, I, I mean, you know, Keir Starmer might be tempted to go down the the, the line of, of of who's to blame, um, but you know, bit, Boris Johnson will be entitled to come back to him and say, well, you know, you didn't suggest uh, anything different except for uh, the, the 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 October November period when when Keir Starmer did actually call for a lockdown before yeah. Boris Johnson. Yeah, but I mean, uh, we, 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 we've, we've rehearsed that particular conversation, haven't we? They've done it before, and, and Boris quite rightly said, well, we didn't know about the new variant until December the 18th, so it's a bit unfair to suggest that just because you said you wanted to do something in November, uh, that would have actually worked. Yes, I mean, but I think there is, there is an argument for saying that the government uh, hasn't responded as quickly as it could have done to, uh, to, to emerging threats. And, you know, there may be a case for saying it's not it's it's making the same mistake now with the threat of new variants coming from mm. other parts of the world. Although, you know, I mean, the, 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 the big picture is that it's it's the UK variant, so-called. I mean, nobody knows where it actually started, but it's the UK variant or the Kent variant, which is actually the, the, the world's biggest problem. Um, and we're exporting that to the to, to the world. So, but the question is is still whether this hotel um, airport hotel quarantine is going to be sufficient to contain the threat of of, of mutations yeah. uh, elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think in fairness to um, to the government, and I know people don't like it when I'm fair to the government, um, but you know they said this time, not this time last year, but certainly in March and April of last year, that the advice was 
basically shutting the borders doesn't really work. You can't really do it um, unless you completely do it. And obviously we know because there are so many exceptions to rules that people can travel in between countries. I mean, we've watched uh, with sort of bated breath this afternoon uh, we'll be seeing uh, Thomas Tuchel unveiling himself as the new manager at Chelsea. Apparently, he can come in, yeah. go straight to work, go straight to training, go straight to the dugout uh, uh, in a game against Wolverhampton Wanderers. And so there's clearly, unless you don't have any exceptions at all, and you say, well, I'm, it's very nice you've got a new manager. He's going to have to do it on Zoom from uh, Paris, I'm afraid. Um, it's, <laughs> it's not really going to work. And, and, and those same people giving that same advice today, I'm hearing, where they say, you know, this, this business of locking down, say, from specific countries, not allowing flights in also doesn't work because people come to britain by via via various means but but well yes they can come via somewhere else Mm. or they can come come to ireland and then uh, uh, and then through through northern ireland through the common travel area so yes it's going to be very difficult to make sure that our borders are completely watertight we're not like new zealand i mean it's just no we're we're not in the same same position um but I mean, it's not it's not obvious to me that, uh, that that those kind of restrictions are necessary. But I think it is worth being prepared for them. And I think that's that's where the government is 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 doing the right thing. Um, but yeah, and, and Boris Johnson's perfectly entitled to have a go back at uh, Keir Starmer if Keir Starmer does want to get partisan, because, you know, there are plenty of things that the Labour Party can be criticised for. They criticised Kate Bingham, who who ran the vaccination task force. Uh, who seems to have done an absolutely superb job. Um, and Yes, and know, all those people who said that she shouldn't get the job because she's only getting the job because of Tory cronyism seems to have got a bit quiet. Well, exactly. And, you know, she was allegedly spending vast sums of money on, on PR consultants. Um, I mean, you know, I think, I think at least some of that money was spent on, on public opinion analysis of, of people's attitudes to, to vaccination because anti-vax uh, conspiracy theories are a bit of a problem. Um, so, yeah, I think I think Labour were wrong to criticise uh, Kate Bingham and the vaccination programme has been a huge mm. success and continues to be so. Yes. And unfortunately for the Labour Party, uh, they seem to find that quite difficult to acknowledge. I've listened to John Ashworth this morning, uh, who was doing the rounds, and he was kind of picking on Boris Johnson's comment that uh, we've done um, everything that we could do. Uh, which inevitably was going to leave him open to a bit of criticism. Of course, Ashworth says, well, you didn't actually, because you should have done this, this, this and this. Um, but if that's the Labour line, then I presume we can expect more of that from Keir Starmer, who, by the way, is now self-isolating for the third time. I mean, he doesn't seem to be very good at avoiding it. Well, well he's a politician, Mike. I mean, he does actually have to uh, have to meet more people. Why? than. Uh... No, I don't accept that. Why do politicians have to meet more people? I mean, you and I are perfectly capable of having a very amiable discourse, which occasionally gets slightly tetchy. Uh, without having to be in the same room, why can't he do that? Well, I mean, it's it's very difficult to do everything by Zoom. I think I do think it's important to to to, to meet people and and to observe social distancing while you're while you're doing. Yeah, it. but if he's doing um, that, which is what he should be doing, how come he keeps getting uh, zapped? Well, uh, I, I I don't understand how the uh, how the app works. I, I suspect <laughs> he, obviously a, neither, a, obviously neither does he. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, once he has been, once he has been pinged, he can't ignore it. That's the. That's the no, problem. I know, but I mean, really, after three times, you'd you'd start to say to somebody who doesn't quite understand how to behave in a pandemic when he's been told how to behave and he's telling everybody else how to behave well, that he really ought no, to pull I'm, his socks up. No, but Mike, I would I would rather he 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 was there in person to do prime minister's questions. I think uh, I think I think that's better, and I th- I don't see what, any reason why. 
that isn't possible with the socially distanced uh, parliament that we have. Uh, obviously, that does mean there's going to be a risk of, uh, of, of being, uh, being pinged by the app. Yes, indeed. But also, if he's able to do Prime Minister's questions on Zoom, which I assume he's going to do today, hopefully um, Parliament has worked out its various technical problems, which seem to be many uh, over the course of the last few weeks. You know, why can't he do that every week? You know, it's, it's, I mean, I don't well, want to go it's on. not the same. It's just not the same. Well, it's uh, not the Zoom... same anyway. I mean, it's not the same without the, the sort of people shouting in the background either. No, but I think it's I think it's better that, that, that he's there. I'm not I'm not going to criticise him for, for, ter- for, for turning up. I mean, I think... Uh, I think it's important for democracy. That, yeah. Uh, no, I'm not criticising him for turning up or not turning up, but I am going to criticise him for continually, and three times as continually as far as I'm concerned, um, having to self-isolate. I mean, you know, he spent more time self-isolating without actually having the uh, uh, the virus than, than anything else. Well, let's see. Let's see how he handles it today. It'll be, it'll be interesting. I don't, I don't think I don't think Boris Johnson is going to criticise him for, uh, for 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 having to self-isolate again. I mean, Boris Johnson had to had to do it, even though he's already uh, had coronavirus. Well, that was just as mad, and I was critical of him for doing that as well. Uh, yes, but I mean, at least uh, at least the prime minister will know that he can't be criticised, or that, that Keir Starmer is not going to criticise him today for running um, uh, an inadequate test and trace operation, because um, Keir Starmer has obviously been. Uh, been tested and traced uh, several times. <laughs> yes, that would be ironic, wouldn't it? But I mean, that's the problem as well. I mean, I know, as I'm sure you do, and you talk to people on a regular basis who work in and around Downing Street, and there's been more outbreaks in Downing Street, it seems to me, than anywhere else in Britain. Well, in, in, interestingly, uh, I noticed that on the Prime Minister's um, uh, Flickr account, where he posts all these uh, these well, vanity I photos. I, I don't even know what that is. It's, it's well, it's photos. Um, uh, taken by his his own personal photographer, um, and just recently, just yesterday, they had a cabinet meeting. Mm. Uh, it was held, held held via Zoom, but there are still people in the in the cabinet room with the prime minister. Yes, uh, and started, they, they were wearing masks yesterday, which was the first time I've seen them wearing masks inside Number Ten. Yeah. Speaking of strange photographs, what did you make of that weird thing that Robert Peston put out the other night, uh, where it showed <laughs> Boris Johnson talking to Joe Biden uh, on the phone? But in the mirror reflection, it was rather like watching one of those Dracula movies that the phone cord had mysteriously disappeared. Has Peston gone well, mad? Afraid, I, I have to confess, Mike, it's that is all my fault. Is it? Uh, because, because I had I retweeted what I thought was an absurd conspiracy theorist. Yes. Uh, Saying, saying that the phone cord um, has disappeared in the in the reflection, right. uh, and I said, I said, right, we've now we've now got <laughs> having had um, you know birth birthers and and all the rest, we've now right. got phone cord truthers on the internet on on the internet, yeah, and. And and then, to my amazement, Robert Peston actually retweeted this, saying, "Yeah, well, this is a bit weird. This picture," right. um, and and got himself uh, got himself roundly criticised yes. for. For and, it, so what, right. and so what is that? Because the only official picture I could find, because obviously I wasn't aware of this Flickr account, was one which didn't actually show the full reflection in the mirror. I didn't see. I couldn't. Oh right. Well, so I'm, then I started I'm wondering amazed. if actually that was a real picture. I'm amazed you don't follow the Prime Minister on Flickr. Yeah. Well, uh, sadly, I, I, but, I, I don't have any more I'm, memory left on my iPhone. There's too many pictures of me. <laughs> Well, I do follow the Prime Minister on Flickr, which is which is why I, I keep noticing these uh, right. these photos. Some of them are very, you know, a lot of them are very interesting, including that one. I mean, yes, the, because of the because of the angle of, of of the mirror, it did look a bit odd. Mm. Um, you couldn't you couldn't initially see how it worked out, but I mean, the idea that that people in the Prime Minister's office would spend their time photoshopping 
uh, the <laughs> photographs uh, in order. It, I mean, for for what purpose? We, right. we do not know. Yeah. Is is utterly absurd. And if you look, if you look at the picture, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Once Listen, the, the only yeah. thing that I, that struck me looking at that picture was what on earth is he doing talking through a phone that's on a cord? I mean, is he not yeah, on cordless phones, for heaven's sake? No wonder they can't get the Zoom calls working. He's working on sort of Victorian <laughs> technology. <laughs> well, yeah, Prime Minister still uses his landline. I mean, it is absolutely shocking. It's one of my one of my laws of life is 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 never answer a, a landline right. in an office uh, because it can only be, it can only mean bad bad things. But it is interesting that the number ten still operates. Yes, uh, I mean the only people who call my landline are scammers and my mother. That's it. Well, exactly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and and the president of the United States. Yes, sometimes. obviously. Let's talk a little bit about Joe Biden, because obviously there's been much said, much written, much nonsense has been uh, perpetrated by some of your colleagues uh, about Joe Biden. Um, you know, America has gone a bit quiet, it seems to me. And Donald Trump has gone very quiet, uh, obviously, because he doesn't have access to any social media. Um, but I mean, as far as that telephone call was concerned, I mean, I didn't see that much about what was actually in it. Oh well, no. They, I think they had a they had a, a jolly chat about who came up with uh, "Build Back Better" right as as a slogan because they both they both used it. Um, I, I thought think... they were just told to put that out by the World Economic Forum. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I think it was obviously a, a, a preliminary chat. I mean, they have actually spoken since uh, since Joe Biden uh, won the election. I mean, uh, Joe Biden did phone uh, Boris Johnson then. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, there's there's business to be transacted. Uh, Joe Biden may be coming to the G7 meeting in Cornwall in the summer. Again, there's a there's a question mark over over you know your your question about football football coaches coming into the country yeah. and not having to uh, isolate. Um, and presumably they, they discussed all that. I mean, you know, it's interesting that that, that despite all the the sort of wailing and complaining on, on on the left about how Joe Biden wasn't ever going to speak to mm. Boris Johnson because he's a Brexiteer and Joe Biden is is worried about the Irish border. Um, you know, the president has actually uh, called uh, called the UK first yes. uh, in Europe. Again. Because uh, so, you know, I mean, Joe Biden's been around politics a long time. He knows mm. he knows the niceties um, and he knows that the relationship with the UK. Yeah. Listen, whatever, whatever you may or may not like say or do about or like about Joe Biden, he's a pragmatist. He's going to try and get the best deal for everybody uh, in his country as we're going to try and get the best deal for everybody in our country. And he's not going to throw any sort of spanners in the works, is he? Absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously, obviously the relationship uh, with the UK is less important to the United States than 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 our relationship with the US is to us, um, just just for reasons of size. But mm. I mean, you know, his, you know, there are intelligence uh, connections uh, that are very important to both countries uh, and defence interests. And, you know, it makes perfect sense for them to, to, to talk to each other. And Joe Biden is, as you say, a pragmatist. Yeah, absolutely. And on the, um, the subject of, of where Boris Johnson sort of goes from here, are you one of those who uh, believes that they are now trying to kind of manage expectations downwards as opposed to upwards um, with this talk of, Maybe don't take any holidays until next year. You know, maybe don't look at putting schools back into play until after the Easter break. Maybe not even then. Um, you know, it yeah. seems to me that there's much more um, pessimism around, shall we say, from the government than there has been in the past. Yeah, I think they're finally learning the the, the expectations management uh, game. And, and the vaccination programme is a good example of that. I mean, they're, they're well on track to hit their target in the middle of 
February for for vaccinating all the all the vulnerable groups. Um, and I think you know once once we get there and get get there ahead of time, I think things could start to change quite uh, quite quickly. Mm. Uh, but it 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 is it is a good thing for the government to to uh, uh, under what's it called under promise and and over deliver. Yes. Uh, because you know, I mean, obviously they have set themselves stretching targets in the past, which is which is important for getting the best out of the machine. But it does have a demoralising effect on public opinion if you say you're going to do, mm. you know, what it, it was a hundred thousand tests a day, wasn't it? And they they sort of massage the numbers in order to get there. Right. Uh, but this time they really are doing better than uh, better than they said they would. Yes. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm I'm one of those actually now that wonders whether actually come February the fifteenth, when Boris has said there will be another review that something might actually move. You know, I'm hopeful that there might well be at that point a low enough infection rate, which is that seems to be the way it's going, a high enough vaccination rate where they can make some judgments and say, all right, well, let's do a bit of this, maybe open a gym or two, maybe open some primary schools, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've, I've been guilty of, uh, of, of being too optimistic uh, so many times in the past, just, I mean, just as the Prime Minister has, has too. Uh, but at some point, you know this this will turn around i think and uh, you know that there's a good chance that it'll be it'll be next month because mm. you know i mean the thing about an exponential you know infection is that it goes exponentially backwards as well i yeah. mean once once it starts to recede uh we saw this last summer it it, it receded to very low levels um and you know once the vaccinations are, are rolled out things could change uh, quite dramatically um and we could get back to normal faster than a lot of people expect yeah, well, I mean, I was looking at the, um, you know, as you can look up your sort of postcodes and things to see what the infection rates are. And, and in certain parts of, of South East London, um, they're down things like sort of numbers like 37% um, in a week. They're down to 25%. In other words, you know, it seems to be, you know, I can't speak obviously for every single part of Britain, but certainly the trend would appear to be that the worst uh, of the infection seems to be on the wane. Yeah, I, I mean, Professor Chris Whitty would say that, there's, that the levels are still in, incredibly high. Uh, and that we can't take anything for granted. But I mean, I do think, uh, as I said at the start, I think things are heading in the in the right direction. And once they've started heading in the right direction, as long as there aren't any, you know, unexpected horrors, uh, you know, new mutations mm. and that kind of thing. Um, although, you know, the experts that I've listened to on that suggest that that that's not very likely. Uh, then I think things could could head very quickly uh in the right direction i do think it will be worth making every effort to get schools back before easter um uh, at least uh, at least some of them uh and i think that's uh, you know maybe i'm guilty again of over optimism over optimism but at some point i do think things have to turn yes i think you're absolutely right john great to speak to you thank you very much indeed john rental chief political commentator at the independent looking ahead to prime minister's questions today uh, we believe sir keir starmer will be doing it through his house uh, where he's self-isolated for the third time that's right one two three times that can't be something to be proud of surely mid-morning with mike graham talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio so football right Lots of people say football is very important to everybody's life, and I'm sure that's true. Lots of people say that football uh, should be reopened to the public so that more people can go and watch it, because after all, they're going to be watching it in the open air. They've tried that, and they've done it in certain places. Lots of footballers, of course, think that they're immune from coronavirus because they seem to like to have quite a lot of parties, uh, as we saw over the Christmas holidays. Lots of footballers are incredibly well paid. Not all of them are, but many of them, particularly in the Premier League, certainly are. 
they don't seem to think uh, that anything to do with COVID uh, applies to them. They've been told several times not to hug each other when they score goals. I personally used to love football. I used to love watching it. I used to love going to it. I can't watch it at the moment because I can't watch anything that doesn't have a crowd. It just doesn't do it for me. Uh, I can't pipe in the sound of a crowd knowing that there isn't one there. It doesn't seem real. But the bottom line for me is Thomas Tuchel, who's going to be a very highly paid manager of Chelsea Football Club uh, here in London, has come to this country uh, from Paris Saint-Germain in France, where normally speaking, he would have had to quarantine for a period of time. Because of the fact that he is an elite sportsman, of course he doesn't have to do that. He's gone straight to the training ground. He's gone straight to the football match, which they have tonight uh, with Wolverhampton Wanderers, which you'll hear all about, of course, on our sister station, Talk Sport. The bottom line for me is surely if you're going to try and lock down the country, if you're going to say to people uh, that you cannot come here from another country without going into a hotel, which we believe will be announced sometime today by this government, surely you cannot grant exemptions to anyone. I don't care whether you're Thomas Tuchel uh, or Frederick Forsyth or anybody else or Emmanuel Macron coming here or even Joe Biden coming from the United States of America. If you're going to try and lock a country down and make sure that uh, uh, the actions that you take will ensure that no virus comes in, then surely you have to make it apply to everyone. Football is not a special case as far as I'm concerned. If you're a footballer playing in this country, that's fine. In Portugal, apparently, it's no longer the case that footballers can go in and get an exemption. So some football games between uh, British clubs and Portuguese clubs may have to be moved to neutral venues, I'm led to believe. The bottom line for me surely is this. If you want to make the country secure, if you want to lock it down from people coming here with variant viruses, then you don't let anybody in, do you? This is Talk Radio. Let's talk to Dr. Lawrence Gerlis, GP at Same Day Doctor. Lawrence, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I don't know whether you agree with any of that, but uh, it seems to me that, and you know, I'm not a particularly um, hardliner on all of this. I'm not no. a massive enthusiast for lockdowns. But if you're going to say no. shut the borders because that's the dangerous point, then surely you shut them for everyone, don't you? Mike, I agree with all of what you said. I mean, the history of this, as you will remember, back in mid-February, when there's an outbreak in the ski resorts in Italy, a thousand people a day were landing in this country yeah. from Italy, and they weren't being checked, they weren't being tested, they weren't being anything. I tried in the middle of the summer to speak to some journalists and get some publicity about the fact that lots of countries around the world were asking for PCR tests yeah. before you travel to them. No one seemed to know anything about it. I haven't heard the opposition who are calling for more and more lockdowns, ever say, let's test people coming into this country. Not heard that at all. Mm. And, I, you know, this was happening back in June, July. A lot of countries around the world wanting testing before you travel. And we were doing a lot of those tests. Belatedly now, and look, one of the reasons for thinking about this now is if we're going to be vaccinating 40, 50, 60% of our population very soon, and we're going to be ahead of the rest of the world, that's a very good reason for doing it now. So better late than never. And it is important we do it now. I, it's not to me just about new variants. It's about people coming from countries where the vaccination rate is much lower than we have at the moment. Mm. So I agree with what you say. It's it is too little, too late. Um, I'm not sure about well quarantine hotels. I'm not sure how far you should extend that. But we should. Uh, we, we're now asking people to have PCR tests before they come into the country, and it should apply to everyone. There are. There were a lot of exemptions at one time, journalists and medical staff. It, it, it's been quite confusing. Yes. I've, I've gone online. At one time, they 
were exempted, then they were not exempted, then they were exempted again. Yeah. And I think recently, I'm not sure, perhaps you know, journalists have been unexempted along with medical staff. But I think high-profile film directors and presumably sporting people uh, and business people still get an exemption, yeah. which I agree with you, is, it doesn't make any well, sense. Well, when, when they first launched the list of quarantine um, and people who were exempt from quarantine, I think it was around about back in September and October, I spent a lot of time on this radio station ranting and raving yeah. about the list because it was as long as you are. Yeah. It included people yeah, like BBC engineers. It included yeah. people like yeah. European Union workers. It included um, yeah. basically freight uh, truck drivers. Um, doctors and medical staff, you would understand, yeah. and journalists at the yeah. moment, as far as I know, Lawrence, are covered by work. So, for example, if they say you must only travel if it's essential, if I'm a journalist and I want to go to Paris, I can go to Paris, but I still have yeah. to quarantine when I come back. So, yeah. in that sense, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm exempt from the travel ban, if you like, but I'm not exempt from the quarantine. But, but, but there was a time when journalists were exempt from quarantine. Mm. Right. And that has changed quite recently and, yeah. and very quietly. It's, it's happened behind the scenes. So it's, it's difficult to keep track of yeah. this. Yes, um, I mean, it's another case of people becoming, I mean, as I said to you many times before, I'm supposed to know what the rules are on everything, and I don't. Yeah. No, and, and it's been difficult to find them. And, mm. I, and I think journalists and medical staff, so you and me, would, would both have to quarantine if we left the country and, and came back in. Which is which is probably the right thing. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just difficult to keep up to date with it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, not, with... I'm not disagreeing with the principle. I'm just saying if you're going to have it, surely it has to apply to everyone. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, exactly you know, right. what is the point? Let's talk, uh, Lawrence, about the situation uh, as per it is this week. Uh, I'm seeing on um, my sort of postcode searches, as I do from time to time, uh, rates of infection going down quite sharply yeah. in parts of London. Yeah. What, what are you seeing? Yeah. Exactly, exactly that. And that's anecdotally, you know, December, we were seeing lots of cases, uh, the cases are, are below half of what they were. And, and if you look at the, the data, and it's been quite hard to find out, there's been lots of TV reports about young people getting sick. But actually, if you look at the death data, it's still principally no different from March, the over 80s, the over 75s. And this is my argument, and we've talked about this before, that, that we should release some of the younger people from lockdown, open the schools in at half term open the universities open the shops and the restaurants maybe not the pubs for now because the younger people are not going to be vaccinated between mid-february and mid-march anyway right. um they are not at particular danger of death then we may get a bit more herd immunity but the data i've just looked at this morning it's still the over 75s whom we can protect yeah and we look up there, you know, the care homes had another problem. We've got to look after them. We shield them. We vaccinated once a lot of the over 80s. But, the, you know, there's no reason to keep young people and school children locked down until Easter. It, it will just put off the, the inevitable. No. A little bit of herd immunity will help while we're rolling out the vaccination campaign. Uh, and I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping the government's figures... Uh, continue to see this drop in cases and deaths. And I'm hoping yesterday's death rate was a high point. I've been mm. saying that for a while, but a, a, a Tuesday number of 1,600 odd, um, it, it, it's too high. We need to see it coming down from that, but I'm yeah. hoping it would. 
I mean, it needs to get back down below a thousand, doesn't it? And then, and then we can hopefully see yeah. it getting down to five hundred and then back down to, to what it was. Unless perhaps yeah. in yeah. October, I mean, you know. But I mean, the thing as well is we've been taking calls uh, all this week and most of last week as well, Lawrence, from people in tears talking about their yeah. children, saying that yeah. they feel like committing suicide, talking about their yeah. like, their terrible sort of situation, not being able to see their parents. I mean, it's a really bad situation out there. It is. And, and, and for example, if you look at the Swedish example, it's difficult to, to compare Sweden with the UK, but they appear to have 40% herd immunity. Um, now, I know they've had higher case and death rates in other parts of Scandinavia. But, you know, if you, and I said this last time we spoke, a little bit of herd immunity can do no harm. It's, it's as good as vaccinating, mm. as long as people don't get very sick. And there's no convincing evidence that young people, certainly school children, don't get very sick and if they can get some herd immunity among school children the university students that should be good for all of us yes i mean the trouble of course is for for, for, for everybody that the the r rate which is believed to now be below one immediately goes up as soon as you open anything you know without actually looking at the evidence yeah. that, that produces yeah. that because that's how it's calculated so for example as soon as you open a school the r rate goes up as soon as you open universities yeah. the r rate goes up and then we'll be yeah. dealing again won't we with all oh, the r rates gone up to 1.3 we'll have to shut everything down again and there'll be cases but as long as the, the nhs can cope and we're looking after the people the elderly who are likely to die that should not matter it should be a calculated risk and and the authorities, the, not the government, the medics should say this and be open about yeah. it. But this is what we're going to do. It's, it's, it's calculated. We know we're going to get a small increase in cases, but that should increase herd immunity without causing significant mm. health risks to a large number of people. People have got to be careful. They've still got to social distance. You go to restaurants and so on. Still got to be careful. Don't want large gatherings. Maybe allow you know two families to meet up. But, you know, we don't want to go back to large parties. We know there are illegal raids mm. going on all the time. There are house parties going on all the time. So we're, we're not going to lose very much um, if we just allow ourselves to open up at around half term, mid-February. Mm. Yeah. But it looks once again, Lawrence, I'm afraid to say this, that, you know, all of the warnings that the dire state of, uh, of our ICU wards and the terrible state of hospitals and, you know, the stress that people were being put under, if we are past the, the worst of it, which it would appear that we might be, once again, uh, they've been crying wolf, haven't they? No, look, it has been bad. It's been, it's been terrible. I didn't expect a second wave. I said there wouldn't be a second wave. This second wave has been nasty, all right? I'm not, I don't want to minimise that. And the hospitals no, have me been neither. Listen, I, listen, I don't want you to think yeah. that I'm minimising it. Yeah. What I'm saying is, no. is that they can't keep telling us that we are at our wits' end and we're about to explode because we haven't got capacity. And every time they say it, if it doesn't happen, people just won't believe it anymore. Yeah, that's the element. Look, I just, I, I just think we're past the worst. I'm hoping. I believe if you look at the case numbers down from 60,000 a day to 20,000 a day, we must be past the worst. That's got to reduce hospital emissions. It's got to reduce the death rates. It's got to take the pressure off the NHS now. And it would, when you look at the numbers that are being vaccinated every day, um, that is going to work through into reducing the cases. So, uh, you know, this talk of locking down till Easter is nonsense. And I'm not saying this from the point of view of the economy. I just don't think it's right medically and clinically, not just for the sanity of people that are locked down, but I believe it's good for, for controlling the virus to let people out of it, get a little bit more herd immunity because the young people should not suffer. And the herd immunity, like they have in Sweden with 40%, it should be something that, that would help us.
Yeah, no, absolutely right. Dr. Lawrence Gillis, thank you very much indeed, as ever. Uh, GP at Same Day Doctor agrees with me about the football situation, by the way, uh, because, of course, it is not correct to allow anyone to come into the country just because they are either Madonna, because she's a high net worth individual, or Thomas Tuchel, because he's important to Chelsea. Uh, I've got this, though, uh, from somebody who doesn't agree. Dave says this, the new Chelsea manager probably got clearance due to being tested before he left, then flying by private jet, then keeping safe distance, covering face, etc. When he got here, non-story, move on. I don't think so, Dave. I'm not moving on. Because the problem for football in this country, it seems to me, is that nobody in the football business seems to be taking this seriously. And they seem to be given the green light to do whatever the hell they like. I don't think that's fair when other people are not able to do whatever the hell they like without getting a fine or without getting visited by Her Majesty's Constabulary. I don't think that's on. Sorry, Dave. This is Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I said this morning when uh, you looked at the newspapers, it was a pretty grim sight to see uh, the number 100,000 on many of the front pages in terms of the people who have sadly died uh, from coronavirus since the pandemic began. But today is also an important day for other reasons. Uh, It is Holocaust Memorial Day. And I've just looked at a tweet from the Auschwitz Memorial uh, Twitter account. On the 26th of January, 1942, A Dutch Jewish girl, Alida Baruch, was born in Amsterdam in July 1942. She was deported to Auschwitz and murdered in a gas chamber. That just doesn't really bear thinking about. Let's talk now to Lady Milliner Grenfell Baines, MBE, um, who was one of the fortunate children who managed to escape from Prague. um, And she was able to get to the UK and survive uh, from what could only have been the most horrific of deaths. Lady Milliner, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Good thank morning. you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I mean, I don't know whether you think of yourself as, as fortunate, but um, but when you were nine years of age, um, you were able to leave Prague, I believe, um, to escape what was likely to be a terrible end. Yes, I came on the last of what were known as the Winton trains, and I had my three and a half year old sister with me, um, and we came to England. Uh, it's a, it's a story I tell at school, which normally takes forty five minutes. <laughs> so very briefly, yes. uh, I came came up to Ashton Underline to we, we lived with an English family who sent their daughter to live with their grandmother because they couldn't uh, didn't want to separate us and they only had two bedrooms, and so we were with them and very luckily, both my father escaped. He was warned to leave uh, way before us, and my mother escaped in uh, nineteen forty. So we were the few children who actually had their parents, because most of those uh, 696 children who came and the 
2,000 refugees who came from Austria and Germany the year before, very few of them had parents. I, I lost my grandparents, my cousins, and, uh, and aunts and uncles, but we were very lucky. Yeah. And what did you know at that time, uh, Lady Milliner, about what you were actually escaping from? Well, I was nine. And uh, frankly, I can barely remember, but I certainly wasn't aware because when we left, Prague, although already occupied, uh, you know, children could still go to school. They hadn't got to have, wear the, the yellow stars. Um, it was all evolving. So um, my sister and I, with other children, uh, it was the older ones. When we spoke to the other children, because some of us went to a, a Czech school together, the 14 and 15 year olds, and uh, you could you had to be 16 and no more. They were aware of what was happening. But uh, my mother never told us. We knew that our father was in England already. So mm. that was a sort of safety mark, although he, he wasn't well enough to look after us. So frankly, I barely remember it. And I certainly wasn't. I was always a bit adventurous as a child. And uh, so as far as I know, I wasn't upset. But my sister, who can't remember a thing, mm. she was three and a half. She never spoke. I think for her, it must have been a dreadful shock, you know, to leave, to be left. And she said to me years later, she thought she was she was angry with, mm. with her mother for sending her away. Yeah. Uh, we recovered. And uh, but that was the initial start of the journey. Yes. And then you mm. must have lived presumably in the UK through the war, um, which must have been, oh, yes. we, uh, we, which must we have been pretty to, difficult uh, as well. Well, no, we went up to Ashton Underline near Manchester. And uh, again, um, I've, we felt no deprivation at all. Mummy um, Ratcliffe, as she was known, uh, was a very good cook. Uh, I remember children remember food. Yes. Uh, in memories and strangely enough the things we do remember I'll backtrack a bit when we got on the ship that took us to Harwich we were given cups of tea with milk mm. and if there are any Czech friends listening they'll laugh now because we threw it out we <laughs> never had tea with milk right. and we were given white bread sandwiches which we didn't like we wanted our Czech bread right. you know but by the time we lived with the Ratcliffe's uh, the memories are, are basically plum pie and Yorkshire pudding you know things like that Wonderful. so that was never a problem yeah. for us absolutely and incredible. We, and we must have learned English very quickly because by August I have a photograph uh, in August we were taken on a holiday with the Ratcliffe's to a, a camp and I have a picture of me standing putting some oil on a boy with a cricket bat so I must have been learning to play cricket. Mm. But one of the interesting things others, I was sent to an English school for the first two years, and uh, I would be about 10 by now. And we were all given knitting needles to knit squares for, for soldiers. And I could knit, but when I started knitting and the whole class went very quiet and the teacher came and said, what are you doing? Because we knit differently. Yeah. We hold our needles differently. And I said, I'm knitting. She said, oh no. She said, you must learn to knit in English. <laughs> It's a funny. It's the funny stories, I guess, that that, that keep you going, Lady Milliner. I wish we had more time Absolutely. to talk to you, but uh, but we don't. Thank thank goodness for that train, and and thank goodness for for you being able to get here. And and uh, uh, it's good that we can talk about these things now uh, because they no longer happen. Hopefully, Lady Milena Grenfell Baines, MBE, who escaped the Nazis literally on the last train uh, out of Prague, out of Czechoslovakia at that time before they started sending people to gas chambers and concentration camps. It doesn't bear thinking about, but you should think about it today. Uh, it's Holocaust Memorial Day. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, you may not have heard uh, of somebody uh, called Lord Foster uh, of Bath. He's known as Don Foster, Baron Foster of Bath, some would call him. Um, he's a guy who is a Lib Dem. Uh, he's basically worked in the public sector most of his working life. He was an MP for 23 years for Bath. Uh, he's been in the House of Lords for six years. He was a councillor before that. So he's basically been uh, taking money from the public and the taxpayer for most of his career. You know as well as I do that here at Talk Radio, uh, we like to have one or two opinions. And uh, we've had one or two opinions on this show, certainly, uh, and on other shows about the BBC. The BBC has been under attack from all sorts of places, including various members of Parliament, including various members of other media, including, of course, some people who even work there. Because, of course, people that they pay are overpaid. Some of the people that they charge money to, i.e. the over 75s, are threatened with prison if they don't pay the licence fee. We have been, I would say, fairly uh, at the forefront of campaigning to change that. But let's have a listen to what this Lord Foster of Bath had to say about us in the House of Lords. Lord Foster of Bath. Uh, my Lords, over the last few months, the Rupert, Rupert Murdoch-owned radio station Talk Radio has been using its broadcasting licence to wage war against the BBC licence fee and its collection. Last week saw a particularly egregious example, which was blatant and inaccurate propaganda designed to pursue commercial self-interest. So does the minister agree that if it is to maintain its reputation as the guardian of impartiality and accuracy in broadcasting, Ofcom should investigate and act? Well, the noble lord is right that it is absolutely uh, Ofcom's responsibility uh, to address issues such as that which he... So here's a couple of questions for my Lord Foster, uh, who picks up, I dare say, a pretty penny from the House of Lords whenever he speaks from his lavish home because they get an attendance fee, do they not, if they are there, even if they are not there, as long as they're making a speech. Now, I wonder what it is that he's referring to as blatant propaganda. Could it be that we think they are wrong to charge a licence fee to people over the age of 75? Because that's true. They do. Could it be uh, that when we said it was wrong for the BBC to prosecute people for not paying for their television licence, that that was wrong? No, because that's also true. Could it be that we think some of their uh, stars are overpaid by the public purse? Because that would also be true. So I'm struggling to know, my Lord Foster, what it is that you think we got wrong, what it was indeed inaccurate that we said. Because... Uh, Otherwise, I think you should pipe down, mate. Let's talk to somebody sensible from the House of Lords, Baroness Hoey of Lyle Hill and Rathlin, uh, who's recently, of course, been put into the House of Lords, hopefully to shake the place up a bit and give them some common sense. Uh, Kate, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Um, I mean, you might expect, I suppose, that uh, uh, my Lord Foster, being a Lib Dem, uh, is a massive Remainer. I mean, I looked at his Twitter page and uh, he was still asking people to rejoin the European Union quite recently. Uh, so naturally, he's probably taken against talk radio for all manner of ideological reasons. But I don't quite understand what he's attacking us for. Uh, does he not like us having a different opinion to him? Uh, well, it was my question originally yesterday that actually got this little 10-minute debate on decriminalising the licence fee because I had asked why was the government not going ahead with this mm. because during the election, many of the cabinet ministers went round promising that they would decriminalise. And I was quite shocked, actually, by um, 
Lord Foster's uh, one of his, uh, he was one of the follow-up questions. Lloyd Moynihan, Colin Moynihan, the former sports minister, he supported me. But other than that, the other six uh, lords who all spoke were all uh, very, very um, against decriminalising. But mm. I think he was particularly ridiculous because he was actually attacking a programme for having a debate on the issue. And yeah. it's almost if he wanted to not have that debate. And of course, we know that if there is a debate, a real debate in the country, most people would agree with us because, you know, it is just shocking, as I said yesterday, that there are people, Capita, this company that seems to get all the government contracts, Capita go round and they really do harass people. Mm. Uh, they bully them, particularly elderly people now who've discovered that they have to pay a, a licence fee. And it's 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 all right for the minister to say, as she did say, oh, well, not many people actually go to prison. Yes. It's the threat of prison and that kind of terrible stress that's put on people that then makes them actually end up paying. So I, I, I was really shocked by it and his attack. But, you know, I, I would say, Mike, when people start attacking you personally like that and attacking a programme and, and indeed a whole radio station, it clearly... Kitty, you're doing something yes. right. <laughs> no, I think I think that's true. And it's amazing how much attacking is going on out there at the moment against us uh, because we are cutting through an awful lot of issues. But I wonder which particular interview he's referring to. I'm I'm like I'm hoping it's the one that I did with Mark Dolan, uh, in which we talked very much about the decriminalization. We talked as though uh, because they said, Oh, we've only locked up five people uh, in the last two years for non payment of the BBC licence fee. And I'm like, Well, what do you mean you've only locked up five people? For what offence exactly? For not paying for a television licence? It's ludicrous and ridiculous. And also, I'd love to know, if you get the opportunity to ask him in the tea room next time you see him, uh, what it is that he thinks was inaccurate about anything that we said. Because we get this level that is all the time that we we come out with stuff which isn't true. That's precisely what we do not do here. Yes, well, I, of course, that's always the way the BBC themselves answer it. They always try to imply that, you know, we didn't ask the right people. Mm. They imply that they did a consultation that showed that people were actually quite happy with with the licence fee. They don't tell us who they actually consulted. And we know there was a lot of campaign groups got involved in that consultation. But also, you know, the, the, the serious nature of this really is that it, I think what they're concerned about is if it's decriminalised, then it actually opens up the debate even more mm. about why we're paying a licence fee in the first place. And mm. what I said yesterday was that I felt even paying the licence fee these days for a BBC that older people are beginning to go off and younger people haven't really turned on to. Um, you know, when people actually want to be able to get lots of other channels, why should they have to pay to be able to get a television, mm. to get Netflix or watch Sky and pay for Sky? And I do think, that they're concerned that decriminalising it will be the beginning, really, of um, the end of the licence yeah. fee. But I, you know, I think that's going to come anyway. It's just yes. a question of time and working out an alternative. But as I said yesterday, choice. People should have the choice. They, if they want to watch the BBC, then they could... You know, they need to have that choice, mm. but they shouldn't make everyone else pay for it who don't, who don't want to watch. Well, no, exactly. I mean, it's the only tax, is it not, that exactly uh, is, is enforced upon absolutely everyone in the land. And you have to pay it. There is no choice about it. There is no exceptions. Uh, you know, you get you get any kind of uh, uh, communications device. The next thing in the post is a, is a letter saying, I mean, I remember buying once a, a, a new set top box or something in the days when Freeview was the only thing you could get. I got it home and I started getting bombarded with letters from the licensing people saying, have you? You got a tv license 
And yes. it was like, you know, well, yes, I have. But if I was somebody who was a slightly less, uh, shall we say, obtuse than me, they might get worried about that. They might worry that they're being threatened. They might pay twice. They might do all sorts of things. And it's a bullying kind of technique that they use, which I think is outmoded and disgraceful. Yes, and Capita are being paid a huge amount of money to do this. Uh, and, of course, the BBC say, well, if we weren't getting the licence fee, we wouldn't be able to do this and that. Perhaps the BBC is trying to do too much these days mm. and trying to get, instead of going back to what it's... You know, I watched the BBC News last night, and quite honestly, it was something like 20 past six before there was any news mm. other than just a whole 20 minutes on, on, on COVID. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think the mood is changing in the country, um, and there's there. But unfortunately, it's it seems to be the same people, and certainly it was yesterday. The same people in the Lords who, as you said, were very, very much about remaining mm. in the EU. Um, you know, who who can't bear the fact that other people might have a different opinion. Mm. Who actually were criticising those of us who wanted to decriminalise, as if it was almost a kind of London-centric, yes. you know, sort of trendy kind of thing to, to support the BBC. Whereas if you didn't do that, you were some kind of, um, you know, out, outrageous um, person who actually... Yeah. Ignorant, wanted... ignorant yes. sort of racist so... right-winger. Well, how about, how about this other thing that you picked up on? I, I tweeted this out as well yesterday. Um, a piece from BBC News in Northern Ireland where they're investigating uh, the breach of a COVID-19 regulation at the funeral of someone who was in the IRA, but they refer to them uh, as an IRA veteran, which uh, is a, a rather unusual description, I would have thought. It was actually a very shocking, um, shocking report that they had called that person a veteran. And I think what upset a lot of people was, you know, there have been a, a terrorists on all sides. Um, but, you know, it's very interesting when the BBC refer to anyone from the sort of pro-union side who's mm. been involved in the past, they will call them terrorists or but they won't they seem to have a very easy going attitude to um the, uh, the ira and i think it shocked a lot of people and mm. has upset people and you know the bbc has to try and show that it's impartial but more and more you just feel that the journalists not just on this on that issue but on lots of other issues have their own agendas yes and there's that, no question and i don't mind if they're honest and but you know when they're meant to be a public service it's very different for something like talk radio or for other radio stations who are not getting public money to be able to do things the way they want to. But mm. the BBC has to always remember it's we are paying for it. Yes, exactly right. And also the place is run so inefficiently. You know, you would think it was an out, uh, an outreach a service of the government because, you know, um, they don't seem to be able to fire anyone. I mean, that guy Ken McQuarrie was somebody I use as an example, uh, who was head of regions for the BBC. And they suddenly decided that he was going to retire. But instead of retiring him from his £325,000 a year job, they gave him another job uh, in which he's now overseeing diversity uh, in the news programming. for guess what? The same salary, £325,000. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Yes, and, and, and they've appointed people who, you know, to actually look at uh, impartiality, who've worked for the BBC all their lives. And, and, and obviously they're going to be, uh, you know, they're going to have some bias towards the BBC and protecting it. Um, so I, I just think it's, it's important that the public start to speak out as they've been doing, that they um, look at the defund the BBC website, which gives a lot of information and some things that even I was shocked with when you discover uh, that this happened um, and and let's have that debate and, and let's sort of not not think that forever and ever we're going to have to pay a license fee that it can change modern technology is so different now and as I said young people just are not watching um, 
mainstream. And of course, everyone has the right to not pay their license if they only um, watch on demand. Mm. In other words, we don't watch live. But the idea that you have to pay the BBC £157 to say just to watch, um, you know, to then pay extra to get Sky if you never watch BBC. Yeah. Ridiculous. And someone who hasn't got a television, and I had two cases like this in my constituency when I was an MP, two people who genuinely did not have a television. They were harassed and harassed and harassed because the the um, license fee people just would not believe. Just wouldn't believe them, yeah. Television. I know. It is extraordinary. And, and as I say, people don't know exactly what all the rules are. They are worried. And if they get a threatening letter, they get nervous. And many people aren't like you and I, um, uh, Baroness Hoey, capable of standing up to these nutters. So we shall do yeah. what we can to help them. Thank you very much indeed. At the moment, particularly at the moment with the pandemic. Yeah, but exactly. I, I, um, shall I give Lord Foster your best wishes? Please do. And tell him I want to have him on the show because I want him to go through point by point all the inaccuracies that he alleges we made. I'll tell him that if I see him. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Baroness Hoey uh, there, who is, of course, the sensible arm uh, of the House of Lords. My Lord Foster, not so much. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning in the frozen north uh, to Mr Neil Oliver. Neil, very good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Mike. It's always good to see your cheerful face. <laughs> yes, Yes, my uh, my father had a word for it, which I'm not going to use on on, on the radio because it's probably too Scottish to be to be understood. But um, you know, the frozen north is is probably right. I mean, I was watching a friend of mine who lives in North London, uh, where they still had some snow yesterday. I mean, has the snow brought you um, things which are good, or, or has it made it worse? I am uh, my, my eldest boy is the same. He's he's 15. We're both kind of we we like the the winter mm. actually. Um, I love it. I, I love going out when there's snow on the ground and frost on the ground, and I like it when the when the sky is blue and the air is cold in my lungs. I find that, you know, I, I, it reminds me of being a child again and wanting to, you know, break into a sprint and yeah. <laughs> run, up a, run up a hill or climb. It, I feel it quite energising. So, I, I suppose, fortunately, given the timing of all of this, I, I find this quite good. And I think even when uh, even even when the when the weather is bleak, you know, even when it's freezing rain or or, or whatever, and you're out in the early morning dealing with things. Um, I, I find it it makes me think about other people who've suffered so much more in, in other times. You know, you're talking about uh, Holocaust uh, M- Memorial Day. And, mm. uh, and I, you know, I often, I've read uh, quite a lot over the years about all, all of the horrors of the 20th century, you know, tr- out of interest in, in trying to comprehend why all of that happened. But I, I always find when I'm out, when I, if I feel sorry for myself when I'm out in the cold, basically, it always makes me think of other people who had it a thousand times worse, mm. just beyond the reach of of living memory. So, you know, I've, I always I always find it a, a time that, that of year that puts things in context for me, and it, rather than just feeling sorry for myself. Yes. Well, this my, is my, I mean, it's easy though to feel sorry for yourself because you wrote this week about communication with people and the seeing of people, and I mean, I went to uh, actually a theatre. Would you believe? The other day, because a friend of mine's a producer and he's he's worked a new way of of actually making things happen. And he's he's basically shooting um, a musical of The Great Gatsby, which is going to be put out as a live stream. And he invited me to come and review it effectively, which meant that I was allowed to go there. Theatre was empty, had a crew of, of, I don't know, 10 people, but had people dressed up, singing, dancing. I can't tell you um, how uplifting it was just to be there. Yeah, yeah. Over the last couple of years, I did. Um, I, I I did a, a sort of a one man 
show, I think we call it, I was touring a book and I, was, I, I did a two hour uh, recounting of, of, of a book. Um, and I found it every single night terrifying being, being in a, in a, having an audience of, you know, five, six, seven hundred people. Yeah. But the energy that, that and people talk, I'd heard comedians and other people, performers and whatever, talk about audiences and didn't know really what they were talking about. But when I when I found out I had a, an audience of my own, that mm. it, it's like plugging into a battery, yeah. a great big battery of human energy, and it, it, it's great for everyone. You know, you can you can feel energy in a room in a, in a theatre, and mm. obviously, sadly at the moment we're, we're just not able to gather as audiences. But oh, please bring back the time when we can, because yeah. those the power of theatres, those venues for thousands of years, you know, we've known about it since you know ancient Greece that. Yeah people come together in those ways, it, 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 they re-energise one another. Yeah, and also just watching talented people doing things on a stage, you know, you're kind of also reminded that there are joyous joyous things out there, you know? Yeah, it's it's this isolation uh, that's so hard, that's so, you know, incredibly draining and, and enervating for people. And I think because we, we mostly have always, we have had the chance to be together for most of our lives with those we wish to be with, you, you absolutely take it for granted. And now the, the, the forced isolation that, that we've all been going through, you're brought face to face with how how damaging that is in every in every conceivable way. Mm. Uh, and yes, to, to find ways in which we can we can make contact with one another again, properly make contact with with, with one another because uh, the, the toll that's been that has been taken on people and you're right i mean your friend there finding another way to 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 communicate something uplifting and and, and whatever and something to stimulate people mm. it's great but there, it doesn't really it doesn't really compensate for the for the inability that we have at the moment to come together in large groups mm. and people, people do that because they need to do that they do because it is the human condition, and we spoke about your 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 son last week about how he was feeling and and how my kids are feeling and how everybody's children are feeling. And I think people are beginning to understand now, even at levels um, of of government and at levels of of politics, that this kind of homeschooling isn't the answer. It's not working. Many parents have given up on it. Lots of kids have given up on it. And I think with luck and with some pressure from, from people like ourselves, they will realise that the schools just have to reopen because you can't go on like this. Yeah, I, I do hope so. Yes, we've talked about the, the physical toll that we can see it taken on our, on our own children. And I, I hear from hundreds of people every week from by one means or another people saying the same I mean, I've almost, I've, I've lain in bed and, and, and speculated whether the, the government might not be obliged to almost write the year off educationally and and almost, almost offer the, the population coming through an extra year of school. You know, heavens, as, as taxpayers, we pay for it and mm. our children are entitled to it. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, I've, off, I've wondered literally to that extent, I thought maybe we should do, we should do another year for them if we're serious about letting them catch up but but in the in the short term at the moment as with every day that passes with this uh with this going on i'm absolutely seeing it in my own and i'm hearing it from everybody else we're, we're finding actually we're making a great deal of of getting the kids out physically especially our youngest getting them out walking about and you know he meets up with a, a friend and they, and they go out mm. because god they're ashen faced at the moment <laughs> way faced <laughs> children with dark circles under their eyes they emerge from their bedrooms you know where they're online doing yeah. all this on screen learning 
which is all very well, and the, you know, schools are making the, whatever efforts they can, but heavens, the, the kids look rough, mm. just physically drained by it, and we keep dragging them out into the snow and the frost to try and get some colour back into them. Yeah, oh, I know, because, I mean, it's the old adage, isn't it? You know, if you've ever been unemployed um, and you don't have any reason to get up in the morning, uh, or in a student, in other words, as well. Um, a lot of you, you just after a while, you just don't want to do anything. You can't be bothered. Yeah, in all in all seriousness, uh, it's we can't. I think as a society, overlook the toll that's being taken, and and the necessity to get people moving again at the simplest level there's a there's a there's a profoundly moving sequence in in primo levi's uh, if this is a man in the, you know in, in one of the camps he talks about very early on encountering an older man who's washing getting washed at the sink and if water's foul and it's cold and there's no way to get dried apart from using his clothes and primo levi says then why do you even bother and the older man says you've got to maintain the scaffolding yes you have to maintain the Skeleton of you. Now, I'm not making I'm not making comparisons between the two. I, I merely use that to illustrate the point that you, uh, it's so easy at the moment to think oh, I'll just stay in my pajamas, mm. or or I won't even get out of bed because yeah. there's nothing to get out of bed for. And you know, it's so it's impossible to overstate the importance of of galvanising people into getting back into into routines that are physical. You know, we, we need we need the physical, and, and it's all well and good that you can get everything delivered. You can get all your food delivered. You can get takeaway food delivered. You don't need to talk to another living soul. You can just watch binge, watch box sets or something, or or, or whatever. But, but you need we you need the the physical structure to the day. You know, it, it, because you need as as functioning human beings, you need to get up at the, at the same time every day, have a routine, do things. And it, it, it's maybe it sounds ridiculous to be saying that, but I don't think so. I think it's vitally important mm. to get people, you know, to get people moving, and it, it, for want of access to loved ones and and, and crowds and, and and the proper socialising that we all want to do, you know, because otherwise you're, you're going to see the, the dissolution of society. Mm. It, it does it does start to come apart, and you can't say, oh well, it's only been this amount of time. We don't need to worry about it yet. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. But it's, I mean, it, this, this began, this process for me, Neil, began before this, actually, before we were forced into this kind of isolation. I think a lot of people were already in a kind of virtual isolation because they actually believed, for example, um, social media was social. When in fact it's antisocial, it's the very opposite of social. It's the sort of thing that brings out the worst in people uh, and leads to horrible situations being created without anyone ever seeing one another. Yes, I'm literally only on. Uh, I'm only on social media because uh, you know my my agent made me do it. <laughs> so that I, so <laughs> That's that I a terrible excuse. Uh, so that I could publicise, you know, if I if I have a book yeah. that's been published, or if I've got something coming up that I'd like, you know, an audience to know about, or yeah. when I was doing my book tours, you know, it, it's a means to reach out. But I wouldn't do it if I if it, if I didn't uh, if I wasn't able to make a of a necessity of it because you know I've said before it's like it's like it's like bobbing for apples in an yeah. open sewer. Yeah. Being on social media, it's just so unpleasant and. I, I don't really understand why there's so much in the way of you know, anonymous accounts out there. I think a lot of the unpleasantness would be done away with if people had to be on there as themselves. Yes. 
that you're saying something unpleasant to someone, right. they knew who you were and where you were. I think people would be a bit less inclined to be quite so foul to strangers right. if they weren't able to hide behind the, the anonymity. But I, I wouldn't use it but for the fact that it's it's a tool if, if, uh, you know, for, for me to be able mm. to let people know about certain things that I'm up to. But yeah. I find otherwise the, the strain that it takes on me the toll that it would otherwise take on me, I would just, I just wouldn't bother. No, that's right, and I'm, I'm the same. I mean, I do it because I have a radio show. Uh, if I didn't, quite frankly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother at all. Um, but mm. an amazing thing happened this week, where my son had drawn this painting for his teacher. I, don't know I saw that. Um, it's had nearly like 900,000 views on Twitter. I mean, I've said to him, you might want to just give up school and just start painting for a living. His mother's not keen. Um, she doesn't want me to, no, to, to exploit him at such a, at such a young age. Yeah, I thought it was. I, I saw it, and I wouldn't have, if you hadn't, if it hadn't been captioned the way it was, I would have, I would have assumed that it had come from a, a much more experienced. I know, artist. but I wonder if whether I, I wouldn't have bought right. you know, it. Was, but it's it's now been recognised. It's been it's been you know George Galloway's been on talking about it. As India <laughs> Willoughby's been like, some guy who was in the Reagan White House has retweeted it. I mean, and that no. is the kind of the benefit, I suppose, of social media that it has brought this incredible world into your house. Yes, yes. I mean, there's no get. I mean, absolutely. Goodness me. I mean, the, the internet. Full stop. The, you know, the internet has, has been with us, you know, more or less in one form or another since the fifties. Yeah. You know, it's been it's been going through iterations and, and evolutions. The thing we've got now is actually, you know, and it, it's it's a middle aged thing now, and it's been of a, of enormous benefit. But you know, as, as Spider Man says, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, <laughs> um, and it has to be. It's it is kind of out of control in a way that I don't think you know the visionaries that that, that saw it coming you know the people like you know Vinton Cerf and John Postel and Tim Berners Lee and mm. Marvin Minsky and Doug Engelbart and all these guys that that were there at MIT and uh, Stanford Research Institute and brought it forward it, it, it was supposed to be and I, and I suppose under certain circumstances it could have been what the what the MIT's you know. Uh, you know, hippies, for want of a better word, wanted it to be, yeah. which was this open source, open access, unifying, bringing to, co together communities. It has that potential within it. But of course, we are an imperfect species. Mm. And those imperfect aspects of our personalities and, and the way we are have, have got in amongst the internet. And now it's, it's very much, you know, a, a mix of, you know, of good and also pernicious. Yes, there's you a sort of, there's a kind of race to the bottom that goes on culturally, isn't there? Because all all kind of human life is there, and quite a lot of it isn't very pleasant. Yeah, and I think again, maybe maybe we should have seen it coming. But I think that, that anonymity and the fact that anyone can access it from anywhere, you know, it is a, it is an open it is an open door to to the to the best as well as the as the worst. Mm. Uh, and that's why you know I've, I've written recently about you know I, I lament. The, the fact that it has replaced from for so many people almost every other means of communication you know that, that letter writing has gone and mm. and just even voice calls on the phone i mean even making voice calls is, is anathema my, my kids wouldn't contemplate making a voice call to someone it's they, you know you might as well suggest they use a ouija board to get in touch <laughs> with a friend it's, it's just not going to happen if it's not if it's not by text it doesn't happen and I do lament that the loss of, of other means of communication, not because I'm, well, I am a Luddite to some extent, but I think you can have both without losing either. Yes. Oh, I think you absolutely can. But I mean, there will be people listening to this and watching us who probably will go through the entire day, possibly the week, without speaking to another human. Do you remember, you will remember, when, when you were a, a, like a young reporter at, at a desk in an office, 
and there would be that point in the day every we had to make the calls. Yeah. You, you'd, you'd been and people. It was quite. It was quite natural, especially for to put making the call because you knew that you were going to phone somebody up, a total stranger maybe, mm. and and ask them uncomfortable, have an uncomfortable conversation with somebody. Yeah. And I can remember sitting in, in new offices, you know, kind of uh, we would sort of wind each other up to do the calls. Right. Uh, but it's good for you because having that, having to make that person-to-person direct communication without the filter of a of a screen of any mm. kind, yeah. it makes you moderate what you do. It makes you think before you speak, yeah. and you don't see the first thing that comes into your mind. And I think it it, it it knocks off some of the rough edges and corners that are there in us as as youngsters. Yes, and it, it's part of humanizing you and socializing you to actually have a voice call with somebody yes. rather than just an email mm. that's very true because you can do it without thinking and the same goes for social media i think that you can you can sort of abuse somebody i don't know if you've ever seen there's a great video that was done by somebody in australia about sort of this is what facebook's like if it was real life and this guy does things like just following people down the street and shouts at them you know in the way that people would do it on social media and it's very funny but it's also very effective because you would never dream of behaving like that in normal circumstances yeah. but all these people behave uh, like crazy people on the internet i was out, i was walking with my son we were coming back from something we'd been doing in the town and a car you know turned into the road we were about to cross and a pedestrian did walk out in front of the car pretty much yeah and the car braked and the the volley of we couldn't hear a word from inside the car because the windows were closed right. but the driver was gesticulating and, and shouting and bawling and I said to my son, I said, if, if he had just been a pedestrian and he had bumped into mm. another pedestrian on a, a zebra crossing, he wouldn't have done any of that. No. That, he's only able, he only feels psychologically able to do that because he's inside a metal box. Yes. And he's got that distance from that other human being. Otherwise, he would, inst- he would well, unless he's some sort of psychopath, he would have moderated his behaviour because right. you just don't scream at strangers. No. But this has now invaded every aspect of society. You know, it started with the Brexit argument. It, it, it's, it's gone through the, the independence argument in Scotland. You've suffered at the hands of those who disagree with you. Um, you know, as, as, as all of us have been kind of castigated by people who think that we uh, talk radio are somehow dangerous and somehow warning people not to do things, which, of course, we're not. You know, we've got this ridiculous situation now where nobody is able to discuss anything with any degree of intellectual capacity. No, I, I, it's almost it almost feels sometimes as though like through through lockdown and it would be a good example that you you can feel um, backed into just only having a certain amount of sanctioned answers that you're allowed to give to questions. Mm. You know, you, you feel as if there's a script that with every with every new situation that comes along, you know, be it racism or or or, or the transgender debate. They very quickly seems to uh, assemble a set of answers that it's appropriate to give, mm. and that as long as you give one of those answers, then you won't get into trouble. I sometimes feel that like with every issue that comes around, we could all just get a laminated card made up, <laughs> you know, with, with the available. And when you answer that, when you ask a question, you could just point. Yes. You know, like in, like in the old days in, in, in a Chinese restaurant, where right. you just say the number because you couldn't say the name of it. You just point to that answer. Right. That's my answer to that question right. because. If you take that, I won't get into trouble. Right, and, and so it, it takes the it takes the honesty out of of conversations because someone learning not to say something doesn't mean that they have stopped thinking it. Mm. They just learn not to say it, but they still think it. Yeah. But for self preservation, they 
and to say something else. So you, at no point necessarily, unless you know somebody very, very well, can you be as confident as perhaps we once were able to be that you're actually hearing what someone genuinely thinks. Yeah. Because self-preservation in this world of cancel culture means that people just think, well, there's that question. I know the safe answer to that. I'll just give it. But you've got no way of knowing if they actually mean it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I actually had a conversation with somebody um, some time ago who said, yeah, I really love your show, Mike, but I can't admit it to my friends. I'm like, what? I was, like, I was kind of gobsmacked by that. I was like, you know, because people have a view a lot, an awful lot of the time of something which is wrong. And they just believe the view without actually checking it out. I have had the number of, I had a conversation, I had a long conversation yesterday with someone, and I've had, I've had numerous, numerous conversations of the sort over the last uh, year. Uh, the number of people that say to me, I absolutely think what you say, but I, I won't say it, I can't say it, uh, you know, because I'm, you know, because they've got, they're employed or they're, in, or they're within corporate bodies and yeah. whatever that would, that would, that would monitor uh, what their employees and do monitor what what employees mm. say in, in public. So the so the extent to which people are being fo- divorced from their true opinions by fear, and are just learning to say the things that they think are are uh, are acceptable in, and that won't cause them any trouble. We're not we're not having real conversations, or we might not be having conversations anymore. I mean, I I do I say what I think yeah. <laughs> within reason. There are certain things that I keep private, but. Uh, I genuinely, what I'm saying to you now is what I think, but, but so many people come up to me in the street and say, I think that as well, but, you know, and they, they all, they're almost worried about, uh, you know. How... Absolutely. Listen, Neil, great to talk to you. We're out of time again. We both say what we think. Sometimes uh, people don't get it. Hopefully, most of the time they do. Uh, that's why we're the fastest growing radio station on the planet, because we tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.